Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University, who is in temporary residence at the center at the Central European University in Budapest, Hungary. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. And we're thrilled to go back to Hong Kong, where we're joined once again by Professor Barry Soutman uh, of Hong Kong University of Science and Technology and uh, Yen Hai Rong, an associate professor at Hong Kong Polytechnic University. Uh, a very good evening to you both. Well, the reason why we've asked uh, both of these uh, Sino-African scholars to join us back again, we've just recently had them on the show, not just a couple weeks ago, but uh, we're coming back to really one of the what I call the third rails of Sino-Africa relations, or at least the perception of it. Now, there is a deeply, deeply held myth uh, both in the media and in the general kind of thought space that the Chinese in Africa do not hire locals, that the Chinese, when they operate companies uh, on the continent, uh, isolate themselves, and that the Chinese generally do not localize their enterprises. And so in order to challenge some of these misperceptions, uh, both Barry and Hairong have written what's called a thought leadership brief that's available on the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology Institute for Emerging Market Studies report that came out in February of this year called Localizing Chinese Enterprises in Africa from Myths to Policies. Uh, Barry, let me start with you. Boy, this is one of the most sensitive issues when people talk about China-Africa relations. In fact, it's so sensitive that American officials themselves, from John Kerry, the Secretary of State, to Joseph Biden, the Vice President, to President Obama himself, when they talk about China-Africa, this is one of the issues that comes up. Why, in your opinion, is the perception or the misperception that Chinese enterprises in Africa are not hiring locals so widely held and so misunderstood by the general public? In part, it may stem from the fact that Chinese enterprises in Africa are fairly recent compared to other foreign enterprises. That is, it's really been a 21st century phenomenon to have a significant number of Chinese enterprises operating in Africa. Of course, there's a long history of connection between China and Africa. But in terms of having hundreds of companies being operated across the continent, it's really the present century where that's occurred. And because it's so very recent, uh, there are startups, um, startup costs, in effect, uh, for Chinese companies to operate in Africa. That is to say, they have to assimilate themselves in some way to the local environment, uh, understand how things are done in the companies in which they're newly operating. And initially, when they come, uh, they may actually have a fairly significant percentage of Chinese um, employees, not only uh, managers and engineers, but even skilled workers. So that's part of it. That is that they're simply new. And I think when any company comes from anywhere in the world and sets up shop uh, abroad, uh, they often will initially bring a lot of their co-nationals. But the other part of it, of course, is that there are significant skill shortages in Africa. Uh, this doesn't have anything to do with uh, Africans lacking talent or lacking skills, but rather um, lacking particular kinds of skills and particular experiences, many of which are connected with the kind of work uh, that Chinese companies need to, to uh, have happen. 
So, for example, uh, Chinese companies are the premier stadium builders in Africa. They are the premier cement factory builders. And there simply aren't very many Africans who've had experience doing that kind of work. So often it is the case that uh, Chinese companies will have to bring in Chinese skilled workers uh, to do that kind of work, often having to meet very strict deadlines, and to train Africans to uh, engage in that work as well in the future. Hi, Rong. Um, one of the one of the really interesting aspects of this research has been that you, um, the two of you, have have put together a database of a whole bunch of, of Chinese companies, and I think you know, kind of, it's 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 one of the widest ranging of these kind of studies that I've that I've read. Um, what were some of the the wide results that surprised you the most, and that that you found the most notable? Well, I think what's interesting to us is that, in fact, even among a what. Um, uh, first of all, the level of localization among Chinese companies in Africa in general, actually across board, have been um, pretty significant, I would say, or high. Uh, yet, on the other hand, you also do find um, some variations among Chinese companies. Um, and Barry can also add in if you want to. So across different sectors, uh, as well as the, the scale of operation of Chinese uh, enterprises. Um, so we're looking at different kinds of, um, if you will, variables at play in terms of affecting the process of localization. Uh, well, uh, if I might add, um, what we found was that in virtually every African country, uh, there are a high percentage of Chinese companies with a high percentage of local workers. Uh, if you took the continent as a whole, using the database that we've collected, on average, about 80 to 85 percent of all of the employees of Chinese companies are local people. And there's not much variation across industries, with the exception of the IT industry, for obvious reasons, because there still is um, a fairly significant shortage in many African countries of skilled IT workers. But even there, in the IT industry, the majority of employees are local. And uh, we've also found that there have been significant inroads made by Chinese companies in terms of management localization. Uh, well, it's still the case that the majority of managers at Chinese companies are Chinese, uh, nevertheless, if you look at it over time, the percentage of local uh, managers at Chinese enterprises has been increasing significantly. And this is part of the larger trend of the percentage of local workers uh, also increasing significantly over time. If you compare those companies, for example, that um, have been in Africa for, say, less than five years to those who have been in Africa for five years, ten years, etc., those that have been in longer uh, have more local employees percentage-wise. You know, it's head-scratching, your, your, the findings from your, from your research, because it's so different. I mean, just like Venus and Mars different between the perceptions out there. I mean, and, and you look at how politicians, uh, both in Africa and the West you know, jump on this issue. You know, I remember, I think it was even Michael Sada before he passed saying he didn't want any, any Chinese to push a wheelbarrow. I might be misquoting him, but it was one you know, African leader, and that wheelbarrow became the icon for how Chinese labor is displacing local. 
Uh, and it's just become such a, you know, it, it's just, I'm, I'm baffled by, by your findings. Now, the head of, the title of your piece is From Myths to Policies. So I thought we'd have a little fun here. And we're going to do a little bit of a lightning round attacking the myths. I'm going to ask two questions. Kobus is going to ask two questions. And if you can give us kind of short rebuttals to the myths that you raised in your piece. Actually, I'm going to throw you a curveball here. I'm going to put one out there that you didn't raise in your piece, but it is a big myth anyway. One that Professor Deborah Braudigam has addressed in the past, but I'm, I'm hoping you might be able to talk about it. Okay, myth number one. This is coming from me, not from you. Uh, China exports convicts to Africa. To be on to work on their construction sites, right? Well, this is actually we published an article about this. Um, th- again, this typically uh, has been has really sensational kind of story about Chinese labor in Africa, and uh, based on our research, uh, of course, that's not true. Um, in fact, scholars who study China in Africa in general had negated uh, this myth. Now the question is why it's around, and that's a very interesting question to ask. Um, I think in, in many ways it links to uh, certain kinds of racial stereotype that people have had about Chinese, uh, that you know, Chinese people are not just hardworking, but Chinese people are also coolies. So the historical origin of Chinese uh, laborers, which had been used as coolies, again is being brought up in this case. It's also associated with the notion that China is not a free country, that people cannot freely move, and if they actually show up in Africa, and uh, it's probably the case that they're not free. Uh, there is also the notion that uh, that Chinese somehow um, are uh, the laboring practices of Chinese uh, are out of the norm. That is, when everybody else have these kinds of normal labor practice, um, then what happens to Chinese is somehow different. And I think, in some ways, this is um, what's underlying this kind of myth, and perhaps other myths as well, is certain kind of denial that when Chinese companies go out, it's part of the globalization. So the globalization belongs to uh, Western companies, um, but it's not belonging to Chinese companies. So in that regard, then these kind of myths serve as a purpose to keep Chinese uh, migration um, out of the scope of globalization. And I, it's, a, it's a process of otherization. Can I put an, another theory? This is my theory, and I just want to see what you think of it, just to get your reaction to it. Uh, in, in the DRC, when I lived in the DRC, many people said, oh, no, those are Chinese convicts who live in the compound there, which was a Chinese construction compound. Uh, and the reason why they thought it was convicts was because, well, the, the compound was heavily kind of secure, securitized. So there was barbed wire. It actually had even a guard tower. It looked like a guard tower. Uh, it was, you know, isolated from the rest of the community. So it had a prison look to it. When I actually went over to, the, to, to one of the Chinese kind of staff workers there and I said, why do you have all this security? They said, well, we're afraid of people coming to steal our stuff. So it wasn't to keep people in. It was to keep people from breaking in, um, not from people breaking out. So the perception is that maybe some of these compounds look fortified in such a way that houses prisons in places where you wouldn't ordinarily have them. And that then spreads the perception that, well, there's maybe they're trying to hide something. I think that's quite correct. That is, it is often thought by people if they see um, a place where there's a high wall, and there's a barbed wire, and there's a sign saying that there'll be an armed response, um, that it's some place that uh, holds convicts. But actually, uh, 
as I think Cobus knows, <laughs> if you go around Joburg, you see a lot of houses. <laughs> well, like that. I, irony of all ironies, the white aid workers have the same signs and uh, and and barbed wire around their villas and compounds all throughout Africa. <laughs> yeah, and I think the other part of it is that um, often Chinese companies have rules which restrict their employees from going out at night. And they do this because they have a fear that their employees will go to some bar, get drunk, get in a fight with locals, or that they think the general security situation is not good. And so many of the larger companies have such a rule. And then local people see that, well, the Chinese um, who are working there are not allowed to go out. And if they're not allowed to go out, well, what do you infer from that? One guess that you can have is that they're prisoners. But one thing that's interesting about that is there, there was, of course, a country uh, which exported a lot of convicts around the world to work in their colonies, and that was Britain. And uh, a lot of them were sent to South Africa, to Australia, etc. And what's interesting about that was that in every one of these countries where convicts were sent by Britain, convicts escaped. They went into the veld and to the bush, and then uh, people found out about them. They knew that they were convicts. There was very hard evidence because of these escapees. But nothing like that has ever happened with a Chinese uh, in contemporary times anywhere in the world. And if you have convicts, eventually somebody's going to escape, and people are going to know about it. So this is one way that we feel rather confident that uh, China is not exporting convicts to the world. Okay. Myth number two um, that, I, that we'd like to, to throw at you is uh, Western companies are, uh, are more likely to hire locals than Chinese companies. Well, we actually have done some comparative work. Um, we're, we're actually writing a book and about this subject of localization. So as part of the book, um, we have looked at some Western companies and the degree to which they've localized. And actually, it can be said that with regard to certain industries, the level of localization on the part of Chinese companies and Western companies is roughly the same. Like, for example, in the oil industry or the mining industry. These are both industries with a pretty high level of localization for uh, workers generally, no matter where you are in the world. In part, it's because uh, these are capital-intensive industries rather than labor-intensive industries. And um, there are other industries in which uh, Chinese are present um, to a much larger extent, at least in terms of number of companies, than are uh, Westerners present. So, for example, in construction industry in Africa, there are lots of Chinese companies, and of course they get lots of contracts. And their levels of localization vary. But over time, they become very high. And if you compare them to Western companies, again, it's roughly the same. We, don't, we haven't come across any strikingly different um, degree of localization between Western companies and Chinese companies now. It may have been the case 10 years ago, but it, doesn't, it isn't the case now. Okay, now myth number three, and this is one of my favorite ones, Where you, and, and I always just laugh when I hear this coming from white people in Africa, but uh, 
Uh, it says uh, that the Chinese, you know, their culture is so foreign from African culture, and the Chinese isolate themselves. They live in their own communities. They 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 remove themselves from the broader culture, and they resist assimilation uh, from within the local context and local community. Well, again, um, not true. I think when you look at Chinese in Africa, uh, then you have to differentiate between different kinds of presences. Uh, there are Chinese who are in Africa for a um, two-year contract. Uh, so mostly they live um, in company compound, they, they, then they work, they go back to sleep, and two years pass by and they go back to China. And uh, so their interaction with Africans are more or less limited to the workplace. But there are also a lot of Chinese who actually run restaurants, who are traders, uh, who themselves uh, open uh, factories, uh, who do business in other, you know, in other areas, and uh, so these are the people who uh, behave very differently. So when you look at these people, they interact with local people on a daily basis, and uh, some are, sometimes they they intermarry with local people or have local people as lovers. Um, so in this instance, you find um, their interaction with local people are very different. I mean, including also interaction, including uh, getting to street fights. You know, <laughs> um, so I think you also hear from some Africans that Chinese may actually, you know, be. It's interesting that Chinese would actually fight with us, get into physical contact that close with us, while um, you know white expats would never do that. And so. So I think Chinese actually, in terms of their interaction with local people, there's a lot of variation. Uh, one thing that's interesting, it has to do with uh, language learning. Uh, because, of course, typically people have this idea that uh, Chinese in Africa only can speak Chinese. I mean, they, they don't know the uh, language of the colonizers, English, French, Portuguese, etc. And they don't know any local languages. But this, again, is untrue. Uh, we can establish quite clearly uh, in an empirical way, uh, that there are quite a number of Chinese now living in Africa who have learned English, French, or Portuguese, but have also learned local languages. Uh, for example, many people um, living in Kinshasa uh, have said that there are now significant numbers of Chinese who can speak Lingala. Uh, many people uh, living in Nigeria have observed Chinese who have learned uh, one or another of the local languages. So that also, I think, separates them somewhat from um, other foreign presences uh, in Africa, because uh, a lot of people who are the classic expatriates in Africa, uh, while they, of course, speak uh, English or French as their native language uh, or Portuguese, uh, they haven't uh, taken the time and trouble uh, to learn a local language, in large part because they don't have to. I also, I think, you know, kind of on, on a wider level, I think it's important to, for us to start picking apart this, this, this assimilation idea, you know, kind of to, to start kind of... Uh, questioning what that means and what the criticism of these people aren't integrating enough, what that actually means in real life. Because my feeling is that it's a little bit of a, how can I say, it's almost... It's almost like this this, this all-purpose stick to beat anyone with, you know, kind of that, because when are you ever really integrated enough? You know, kind of when as a, as a, as a racial and cultural minority in a, in a very homogenous place like Africa, uh, I mean, obviously, Africa is a very, is a very diverse place with lots of 
lots of different cultures. But as you know, someone who is visually differentiated and who clearly speaks a non-African language, you know, kind of it's a little bit like catching a train in a nightmare. You, when are you ever going to be integrated enough? And in in, in that case, in that context, what does a what does you're not integrated enough really mean as a criticism? I think, you know, kind of, I think there, there needs to be a lot more work done to really unpack, you know, kind of the, the implications of that uh, and, and what, what role that, that charge plays in an African political context. Um, but I think, you know, obviously that, that also, that's going to take a say writing a separate book. Um, so just a final myth to, to throw at you. Um, there is this story and I've heard that, story many times that uh, that China has so many people that they can't find jobs for all of them. So now they're exporting their surplus labor to Africa through migration and through the export of business. I wonder what, what you think of that. Well, in the first place, uh, the vast majority of Chinese and Africans by now are no longer people sent by China, China being the Chinese government, I suppose. Um, rather, they are people who have migrated on their own. Uh, generally, of course, they want to set up some small to medium-sized business. Uh, a lot of them succeed. A lot of them fail and return to China. But uh, certainly the Chinese government is not responsible for the vast majority of Chinese who uh, go to Africa now. And uh, the Chinese embassies in Africa make that very, very clear to Chinese. Uh, actually, the majority of Chinese in Africa don't have a very high opinion of the work that Chinese embassies do on behalf of the majority of Chinese uh, who have indeed come on their own and who the Chinese government feels no particular responsibility for unless there's some uh, major incident. And so it, it probably can be said that uh, Chinese in general in Africa um, have the feeling that uh, they're there by themselves, uh, for themselves, and while they're in the process of constructing some kind of Chinese community uh, in their locality, uh, still uh, they are not connected with any effort on the part of the Chinese government that's comparable, again, to the effort of, say, the British government to export uh, large numbers of their people uh, during for example, the 17th, 18th, and 19th century. There's nothing comparable with regard to China. So we've identified the key myths, and boy, these are prevailing myths. And no doubt anybody listening to this podcast, when they get into a China-Africa conversation with somebody who may not be as informed as our listeners are, invariably is going to come up on this conversation and this discussion. So I really recommend that people refer to these uh, the data coming out of, uh, out of this report because it will debunk any of the... Uh, uh, of, of the fallacies that, that we typically hear. Uh, tell me, uh, Hairong, a few, just very quickly before we leave, uh, some of the recommendations that you have to change some of these perceptions um, and, and, and the policies that you are advising uh, African governments to implement that might uh, alter the, the perception. We think that one of the ways to uh, combat such myths is to do empirical work and to publicize that empirical work. Uh, for example, the Chinese government by now should have been doing what we're doing right now uh, in terms of uh, compiling a database. Uh, the Chinese Ministry of uh, Commerce has their diplomatic outposts in every African country. Uh, and those diplomatic outposts could have been compiling figures uh, for 
workforce localization for Chinese enterprises and widely publicize those. Uh, it's done it only to a very small extent. And uh, it's an easy enough task to accomplish if you have the kind of resources which uh, government has at its behest. Well, maybe actually I think um, it would be better for African governments to also do that. Uh, because oftentimes, you know, Chinese government's own word may not be taken uh, at its value. And uh, so it'd be much better. And also it's good for African governments um, to have its own data set anyway, to actually do regular investigation or research, to fund research, looking into um, the rate of localization, employment issues with regard to Chinese companies, but also to other companies, to other foreign companies, so that you actually do establish a comparative basis for making any assessment. One of the things that uh, African governments could do is to have some uniform set of guidelines or even requirements with regard to workforce localization. Because as of now, each different African country has their own rules and regulations. For example, um, some countries will require that if there is a government tender uh, obtained by a foreign company, that they have to give, say, 30% of contracts, subcontracts to local companies. Uh, they may have to have a certain percentage of their workforce be local people. But each country has a different requirement. And uh, there is an African Union. There are lots of African regional organizations. They should be working on this together to come up with a common standard. Of course, there are differences from one country to another in terms of, for example, the availability of uh, skilled labor. Uh, but if there were some fairly clear guidelines that applied across countries, this would, I think, spur Chinese and other investors to raise their level of workforce localization. Kobus, let me put the question to you as well from a media scholarship point of view, that one of the key ideas here that's, uh, that, uh, that, that both Barry and Hyrong kind of identify in their piece is the role of the media. Why is it that you think that journalists, both foreign and African, uh, cannot seem to get past this perception? I think a lot of it has to do with the kind of time frame that journalism takes place in. Um, you know, what journalists tend to obviously work over very sh relatively short time spans, um, and so they frequently they're forced to to rely on on certain kind of preformed ideas, um, and those obviously then take on a kind of a life of their own. So, you know, certain very conventional frames of certain issues um, end up perpetuating themselves. Um, among other reasons, because journalists don't have the, the time or the resources to really go and do the kind of research that Barry and Hyrong are doing with, you know, uh, that they've done through this study. Mm. Um, they don't have the time to actually go there and interview 500 companies, you know, kind of, so they, they work with certain assumptions in order to get, get their particular kind of work done then of course you know kind of they are kind of pushed in that direction by governments you know kind of and in, in this case as you mentioned before the u.s government is a particular culprit actually because they do insinuate and play on these you know kind of on these perceptions when it suits them um so you know and in the case of African governments, most of the time, the, the reason they're being quoted in the first place is because they have some kind of political point to make. Um, so, you know, kind of, so 
they, they draw on these perceptions when they need to, you know, kind of, of Michael Sutter being, being the classic example of that, of that kind of, you know, China baiting occasionally. Um, so I, I think, you know, it's, it's a mix of, of overworked journalists and perhaps lazy journalists sometimes, yeah. you know, kind of, who, who just don't, don't do the checking actually. Um, the kind of the, the general difficulty and expense of, of, for journalists to work in Africa. And then a bunch of different political players that, that have their own agendas and who are happy to perpetuate these stereotypes simply because they, they, they need to. And then it's, it's not being balanced by the Chinese government because, as we've been saying many times, the Chinese government tends to be terrible at communicating yeah, themselves. Um, you know, I'll go back to, to, to Barry's earlier point that this is such a new phenomenon just as – you know, governments are not being able to adapt to it. I think the media also is 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 not catching up either, and so falling back on some of these embedded narratives. And certainly, this is a deeply held one, reinforced by contemporary U.S., European, and African politicians. So I think that kind of gives legitimacy to it as well. the uh, the The thought piece is localizing Chinese enterprises in Africa from myths to policies. Uh, Barry Soutman of the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology and Yen Hairong of the Hong Kong Polytechnic University. University. If you want to be the smartest person at your next dinner party, read this article. This will absolutely debunk everybody's kind of perceptions. Thank you both so much for joining us. It was really a pleasure. Our pleasure, too. It's our pleasure. And Kobus, if people want to follow what you're reading and writing these days, what's the best way for them to stay in touch with you? Um, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Stadenesque. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And, and I'm also on a daily basis on our Facebook page. Our fa- Facebook.com slash China Africa Project. Oh, you took the words right out of my mouth. Facebook.com <laughs> slash China Africa Project. Kobus and I are updating this 24 hours a day. Uh, I'm over here in Asia. Kobus is in Africa or right now in Europe, uh, but in that time zone. And it's a great way to stay on top of all of the latest China Africa headlines throughout the day, just as a news feed of sorts. Uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter, Twitter, I'm at E-O-Lander, E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. Also, you can follow all of our work on the Asia Society's amazing website, Chinafile.com. We post our podcast there every week, uh, and there's just a fantastic resource uh, full of China news and analysis that's over there as well. And if you want to follow this podcast, best way to do it, just head over to iTunes, search for China and Africa, and then we'll pop right up there. We'd appreciate it if you could leave us any kind of star rating or quotes or uh, a, a, a comment would be fantastic just to help other people find the podcast. Until next time, we'll be back with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Listening.